This morning we continue our series on the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And so if you have Bibles or appropriate electronic devices, um, would you uh, turn there to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The winter of 1659 was an especially harsh one in low countries. You're looking at me. <laughs> Debbie's, looking, Debbie's giving me a look like I've messed up something. Okay. Apparently we'll talk about that later. <laughs> According to those who wrote during that time, the winter of 1659 was a particularly harsh winter. Don't be giving me grief this morning, Drew. And what are the, and the, the Netherlands, okay. <laughs> we got to do liberal arts 101. For, wow. Sometimes when you're in a hole, it's just time to stop digging. It's, <laughs> the Hundred Years' War, a period of religious strife, was in midstream during this time as followers of Jesus debated violently about the right means of discipleship. Was it to stay within the hierarchy that had been built up over 1,500 years led by the Bishop of Rome or was it to use individual conscience to split away and to form new expressions of the Christian faith. And like Christians unfortunately tend to do, those debates became violent. And in the midst of that debate, along came a third way, a way of saying settling our debates with violence accomplishes nothing. We are called to be followers of Jesus who don't pick up the sword, but instead are willing to be at the point of persecution from both directions as we seek to figure out how to follow Jesus daily in life. And so these radical Christians, these rebaptizers, because the infant baptism that they had uh, experienced uh, didn't didn't feel like it covered their present condition. And so 
they began to baptize each other as adults upon a confession of individual faith. These re-baptizers, these Anabaptists, in the German they were called der Schwarmer, the swarm, because there were so many of them. And they were irritating, brushing them away like flies. These were the folks that used the modern technology of the printing press to print not great big books of theology, but little pamphlets. Little pamphlets that they could stick in the bottom half of an apple crate. And so stand on the street corner and sell apples to the public, but when a fellow believer came by, you could slip him a track. They were, they were a creative, entrepreneurial, interesting bunch, these Anabaptists. One of them, a guy named Dirk Willems, uh, ran afoul of the law, and he got arrested for being an Anabaptist, which in those days was a capital crime, because Europe was nothing if not efficient. Okay? They... Uh, they figured out, you know, if the church is going to keep infant baptismal roles in each parish, why would the state need to keep a separate set of tax rolls? We just use the infant baptismal rolls to determine how much to tax each household. Well, <laughs> one little problem. If you didn't buy into the notion of having your infants baptized, you were essentially saying to the state, uh, we're going to cheat on our taxes this year. And as we all know, the state looks rather dimly to cheating on your taxes. So Dirk Willems gets arrested. And he gets, he gets put in a tower, in a small castle in the Netherlands, awaiting trial and probable execution because being an Anabaptist was a capital crime. Just to, be, just to be accused of being an Anabaptist laid yourself open to uh, gruesome, ugly public execution. Well, jailers in the Netherlands weren't, you know, the, the brightest bulbs in, in, in the lampshade, we could say. And they uh, kept giving Dirk more and more blankets because he was cold. And Dirk began to knot these blankets together and in good Rumpelstiltskin fashion lowered himself out of the tower one cold February morning and took off. Chase was given. He was pursued by his jailers. Dutch jailers back then tended to be shall we say, a bit heavier than their captors. And as Dirk crossed one of the frozen rivers that he uh, uh, knew he needed to cross to to get to freedom, as he's clearing that river and making his way to freedom, he hears a crack and a splash and a cry for help. And he turns and looks over his shoulder. And there is one of his jailers, large, swarthy Dutch jailer, fallen through the ice, which, as we all know, is a dangerous condition to be in. So Dirk does what the gospel taught him to do. He turned around, and he went back, and he rescued his jailer, who, upon being rescued by this Anabaptist Christian, this inoffensive man who simply wanted to follow Jesus, 
to the best of his ability. This jailer thanked Dirk by rearresting him and overseeing his execution the next morning. The church in Smyrna was a good church in a difficult time. It was a church that struggled like the early Anabaptists 1,600 years later, struggled to make sense of the world they were living in. Smyrna was uh, one of those towns that was really, that really had hometown pride. They, they loved being Smyrnites, whatever they called themselves. <laughs> and not only did they love being Smyrnites, they loved being part of the empire. They, they thought Caesar was great. The benefits of the Roman Empire far outweighed anything else they could imagine. And if, and if you didn't like being part of the Roman Empire, well, you could just move to Persia. Or you could move to the Sahara Desert. Or you could move to Gaul up north in France where crazy people lived. You know, you could, you could go somewhere else. But if you were going to live in Smyrna, you were going to respect the empire. And so here are these new followers of Jesus. Some of them are Jewish. And as Jews in the Roman Empire in the first century, they had a certain level of protection. Jews were generally uh, excluded, excused from the annual rite of homage to Caesar, where you went in and paid your poll tax, Mark 12, and you took a pinch of incense and threw it in the censer and said, Caesar is Lord. And you were handed your certificate and you went on your way. And for another year, you could say, see, I'm a good, loyal citizen, good, loyal participant in the Roman Empire. I have rights. Jews were generally excluded from that because they were radically monotheistic, and Rome didn't want to stir up trouble where they didn't have to. So if you were Jewish, you could come in and say, I'm Jewish, here's my poll tax, okay, here's your certificate, go away. Didn't have to do the whole Caesar's Lord thing. Some did, many didn't. Christians struggled with this. Do we pledge allegiance to Caesar or not? And Rome said, hmm, hmm, you're, you're not Jews, right? And the church had been through that battle and it said, no, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to elect Jewish identity in order to follow Jesus. You can be a Gentile and follow Jesus. So, well, no, we're not Jewish. Okay, so you're not part of, you're not part of the Jewish faith. You're, you're very missionary. You like, you, you like to proselytize. Well, yeah, Jesus kind of compels us to tell his story to others. Yeah, no, you have to, you have to pledge allegiance to Caesar. That's just going to be the way it's going to be. And Christians in Smyrna struggled with this. They were conflicted over it. They wrestled with what it meant to be a people of God with demands of dual allegiances. And for the most part, the church began to say, we will not pledge allegiance to Caesar. We're grateful for God giving us this place. We love Smyrna. We're 
We're, we're happy to live here, but we're not going to pledge allegiance to Caesar. And the local Roman authority said, mm, wrong answer. And the church in Smyrna began to be persecuted for its faith. The story that, or the letter that Jesus writes to the Smyrnites, those from Smyrna, in chapter 2, verses 11, uh, 8 through 11, really tell a, a, a deep backstory of a church struggling to understand how to live out its call to be in the world but not of the world. It was a church in verses 8 and 9 that was both afflicted and enriched. Jesus introduces himself, reintroduces himself as the first and the last, the one who has come back to life. It's the first time that Jesus uses alpha and omega language and links it to resurrection. He's, he's making a point. He's saying whatever happens now, whatever persecution you experience, there is resurrection. Cling to that promise. Whatever else happens, we are a resurrection people and hallelujah is our song. And, and so, so from the get-go, Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna, that persecution will be in your lot, but persevere. They were an afflicted and enriched church. They were poor. Think about it. If you're not paying your imperial tax and everybody knows it, you're not, you're not welcome at the local chamber of commerce meeting. You're not, you're, you're, you, get, you get edited out of the Better Business Bureau of Smyrna. You're, you're not, you're not going to... People are not going to come around to your businesses often because they don't want to be associated with you because you're kind of out there and wacky and crazy and, and I, might get, I might get painted with that same brush. And so they were beginning to experience poverty. Jesus says, yeah, it's poverty, but you're rich. Your poverty is transformed. You may economically struggle but you have so much more as you persevere. Verses 9 and 10 talk about how the church was both undermined and unafraid. They were being undermined because other people, including the Jewish community of Smyrna, were pointing to them and saying, yeah, we're not them. Please don't, please don't compare us, good Jewish folks who have figured out how to live in this empire, don't, don't, don't compare us to these Christians, okay? Uh, and there was just real imperial misgiving about the church. Now, the first century didn't see a general persecution of the church from, from Spain to the Middle East and from Britain to North Africa. That, comes, that doesn't come until the third century. But there were pockets of persecution all throughout the first century. 300 years of the church's life. And Smyrna was one of those pockets where the church's mission was misunderstood by the powers that be, and they began to collide. And so the church experienced both the imperial misgivings and the slander of others. But Jesus' words to them were, don't be afraid when you're misunderstood. Don't be afraid when people don't get what you're about. Don't, 
don't try to, to repackage your brand so that people go, oh, well, you're, you're okay after all. Be steadfast in the faith. Be steadfast in following me, Jesus says. And in verses 10 and 11, he calls the church to suffer in solidarity. The challenge of persecution is to divide a people that you're persecuting and conquer them. To, to atomize their resistance and to overcome them. But Jesus says, stand in solidarity with each other. Stand together. Be steadfast. Some of you will go to prison and you will experience 10 days of tribulation. 10 days is probably code for a big chunk of time. Uh, a chunk of time that will be unpleasant. But resisting that call to accommodation, resisting that, that atomizing of your solidarity with each other, resisting that leads to a greater glory, Jesus says. It's going to be worth hanging in there together. What Jesus is essentially calling the church to is what I would call the characteristic of tenacity, to be a tenacious church. We don't use that word a lot. I think we should use it more often, but I just like the way it sounds, not tenacious. It's so much better than stubborn, but uh, to be a tenacious church, to be, to be a church that connects to each other, that hangs in there with each other, that, that continues to fulfill its purpose no matter what. The Polynesian cultures of the South Pacific uh, have, have often characterized and stylized the hammerhead shark as a symbol of tenacity. And, and when you think about it, the, Hammerheads, probably that's the only way they've survived in the evolutionary scale of things. I mean, when, you're, when your head is flat and your eyes stick out this way and, and your mouth is down here and you're essentially a bottom feeder, I mean, tenacity is about all you've got going for you at that point. And so the, as the church, we're called to be a tenacious people. And the church of Smyrna gives us some insight into how to do that. First of all, the, the Church of Smyrna calls us to a new economics, a, a new way of thinking about our economics. A, affliction and poverty gets transformed in the Smyrna church from, from a quest for, for riches to communal hospitality. We, we're, we're rich because we take care of each other. We're rich because we stubbornly refuse to let each other go. We're rich because we hang in there as a people, together. Our challenge at Madison Street Church, as God has led us into a season with a lot of new faces in our, in our congregation, is to learn how to do that again. Our founders, 30 plus years ago, knew how to do that. They knew how to live in solidarity and support of each other. They formed household groups that took care of each other and held common purse and shared an economic life together. And that may not be everybody's bag today, but learning to know each other well enough 
to be able to be generous with each other transforms our poverty of spirit into a rich life full of hospitality and graciousness. And we are called yet again in a new and fresh way in this season to embrace that old value in this congregation. And so, like the Smyrnan church, we are called to tenacious hospitality, to stubborn loyalty, to hanging in there with each other. Even when we might disagree with each other on issues of faith and life, even when we might disagree with each other on big questions of theology and practice, we hang in there with each other because Christ calls us, as he called the Smyrnan church, to hang in there with each other and to create a new economics, a new household of life together. Smyrnan Church also invites us to adopt a new stubbornness that slander and conflict no longer shape communal conviction. We no longer, we no longer make decisions about, well, am I going to offend somebody if I talk about Jesus? Am I going to, am I going to offend somebody if I have this perspective versus their perspective? We have a new stubbornness, not, not rigidity, not you know, this is what I think, I don't care what you think, but a new kind of tenacity that says, we're in relationship with each other and our relationship is so strong and our relationship with Jesus is so strong that we can disagree with each other and still love each other. That we, that we can have disagreements with the world and still love the world. That's our challenge. Not to stand in some kind of rigid posture and say, well, like it or lump it. This is the way it's going to be. My way or the highway. You know, my experience of saying my way or the highway in my life and ministry is that I get intimately acquainted with the highway at that point. <laughs> so I, I really have no interest in that. We are called to agree and disagree in love. That love drives everything. That love is grace and truth in action. And so we're called to a new ethic of stubbornness. A new, a new depth of stubbornness that says, I'm not going to let you go. My ideas, eh, they come and go. I, I've changed my mind dozens of times in my life. Maybe. Uh, but I'm not letting you go. And then thirdly, the Smyrnan church calls us to a new fearlessness. That, that death and persecution no longer have power to form communal behavior. We're not afraid of Caesar. We're not afraid of what they can do to us. Death and persecution aren't the point any longer. Avoiding pain isn't the point of Christianity. When we say that, that the Christian walk is about having a happy life, we've indulged in a great adventure in missing the point. Because the Christian faith isn't about you and me being happy on our way to heaven. It's about us being stubborn 
with each other and with the world and in grace and truth, in love and action, calling one another and the world to come to Jesus, the Redeemer and Savior, Lord and friend. And we do that with, without fear of the, con of the possible consequences. And that, that, that lack of fear, that loss of that fear that frees us to engage the world and to engage one another with our differences in joy and in a perverse sort of way it makes us happy Christians on the road to heaven because persecution and death are no longer the enemy the seven letters to the seven churches each lay out a different marker for us to pursue. In Ephesus, that marker, that mark of the faithful church was love in the face of conflicting ideas. Love that gets expressed as grace and truth in action. Not grace or truth, not, not a, 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 some kind of homogenization of the two, not a 60-40 blend, but a life of grace and truth lived fully, out loud, in action. For Smyrna, or from Smyrna, the mark of the faithful church is tenacity in the face of conflicting allegiances, which may mean suffering in the short term, but blessing in the long run. It means a reorientation of our faith, and this is perhaps the most cross-cultural thing about the letter to the church in Smyrna because as, as North Americans, we are geared to the quarterly performance review. Our brains focus on the short term. Boy, if the first three minutes of that new television show don't grip me, I'm done watching it. <laughs> if if that stock that is in my portfolio doesn't get, pay me a dividend in the first quarter, I'm selling it and moving on. If, fill in the blank, we measure success in the short term, in the performance that I can get in the next 90 days, Jesus calls the Smyrna church and us to take a long-term view. Jesus says, in the short term, you're going to be in jail, Smyrna. In the short term, you're going to experience difficulty. It's going to hurt, but in the long run, hold on. There's a victor's crown of life for you. And so this morning, some questions to reflect on. And the first question is maybe one that we don't ask ourselves very often is, good Western North American middle-class folks, but in what ways are you poor? In what ways does poverty shape your life? And, and if you say, well, well, it doesn't, then I would simply say, please read Revelation 2, 8 to 11 again. Because without poverty, there can be no wealth. In what ways are you poor? 
When have you experienced slander because of your faith? I mean, seriously, again, as good middle-class Western Christian Americans, when has anybody ever said anything slanderous about our faith that really, that really mattered? I mean, Christians say slanderous things to other Christians. That happens all the time, and, and that can annoy us. But when have we ever really experienced somebody say something that wasn't true about the church in our time? And third, what do you fear? What are you afraid of moving forward? What would you try for Jesus if you had no fear of the consequence? What would you do in your discipleship if you knew that the consequences were not something you needed to be afraid of? How would you, how would you then live? Some questions to think about. One more thing. Tenacity is God's gift to the church, not our gift to God. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Reversed Thunder, writes, much anger toward the church and most disappointments in the church are because of failed expectations. We expect a disciplined army of committed men and women who courageously laid siege to the worldly powers. Instead, we find some people who are more concerned with getting rid of crabgrass in their lawns. At such times... It is important to examine and change our expectations than to change the church. For the church is not what we organize, but what God gives. The church is not what we organize, but what God gives. And so this morning, my invitation to you is not, oh, let's be a tenacious church. Let's be a stubborn people of God. Let's pray that Christ gives us the spirit of tenacity. Let's humbly bow before the throne of grace and truth and beg for Jesus to coat us with stubbornness. Let's ask him who was stubborn enough to go to the cross to teach us how to be half as stubborn in our daily lives. Let's pray. Give us, Lord, the tenacity of hammerhead sharks, the tenacity of the Smyrnan church, and the joy of living in every confidence that you are Lord, that we are not, and that that makes all the difference. Through Christ our Lord we pray.